Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar-Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you. Whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest in this episode of the podcast is Dr. Rupi Ordula, who you may be familiar with from The Doctor's Kitchen. Rupi is an NHS medical doctor here in the UK and the founder of the non-profit Culinary Medicine UK. And his expertise in the area of food as medicine is something I really wanted to unpick with him. Rupi is a firm believer in the very real power of food and lifestyle change as medicine. That's right. Making tweaks to your diet and lifestyle, having a very real and tangible impact on your overall quality of health. And this doesn't come from a preachy place of do as I say. Rupi transformed his own health by changes in his diet and lifestyle. And I'll let him tell you that story because it is something we cover in the show. But the results were so impressive and real that he started to spread the message that the best method for boosting health comes down to food and lifestyle. As he says in his book, Eat to Beat Illness, I believe that what you choose to put on your plate is one of the most important health interventions you can make. If you're thinking this sounds like a million faddy, unattainable, unachievable and cost prohibitive lifestyles that you've seen on glossy Instagram feeds, then hold on tight for just a second. Rupi is a medical doctor and as a result, all of his findings and recommendations are credible and evidence based. He has done the work, done the research, so can legitimately back up any claim he makes. If you are a regular listener to the podcast, then you'll know I am a huge fan of evidence to back up claims. I'll leave that there, shall I? We just know I like I like to see receipts, shall we say? What I find so enjoyable about Rupi's messaging is that he's just signposting very small changes that can deliver really significant results. He's also not advocating this diet or that diet, and we do discuss the cult of things like keto and paleo in the show, but he is simply presenting where there is evidence that a certain way of eating can positively impact health overall, and that means some of his advice may seem like a snippet from this type of diet or a smidgen of that. It's also important to say that this way of eating isn't about dieting or weight loss. This is about feeding your health. He has also um, some unbelievable recipes in his books that genuinely make the idea of a processed meal seem a little bit ridiculous. And like many people out there advocating food for health, the idea of processed food is kind of something that they all like to try and steer you away from. He also has... Um, a brilliant social media feed go and follow him at at doctors underscore kitchen on instagram because it's a brilliant resource if you're looking for succinct information and tools to make actionable changes to your health and you know i wouldn't share someone with you on this podcast if i didn't think their insights and expertise would add value to you so i hope that you enjoy this conversation with rupee we discussed taking ownership taking ownership of your health his own experience resolving a pretty serious health issue through diet and lifestyle changes while working as a doctor in a busy hospital and how eating whole, colourful and mostly plant-based food with some good quality fats and plenty of fibre can make a world of difference to how you feel both physically and also mentally. So without any further ado, please welcome Dr. Rupi Ordula on to The Emma Gunn Show. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rupi Ordula. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I've exercised. <laughs> I'm drinking my coffee. Uh, I, I feel very refreshed. I'm, I'm very up for this conversation with you, Emma. We've had very similar mornings, exercise and coffee. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, first of all, I just want to say congratulations on everything that's been going on with you because your book is incredible. I believe you have another one on the way. Yeah. And your podcast, so this is The Doctor's Kitchen, and your podcast is just going from strength to strength, which must feel amazing, right? It, it's a nice feeling. It, it's funny, Emma. Like, I, I ne- I've never taken compliment, compliments well. I always get super awkward. I don't know why. There's probably something in my childhood that I need to explore with a psychotherapist as to why this is the case. But when you're in it, and you probably know this as well, you don't feel like patting yourself on the back. You're just like, okay, what's next? What's next? What like, how do I improve and increase the the message and how do you, you know, continue to build on what you've you've built up thus far? Um, and in my mind, because I've got, I've started doing vision documents and trying to um, engage the law of attraction. I'm mm. constantly thinking about like a couple of years ahead of me. Um, so for me, it's like this is great. It's lovely to have two books and another one on the way. It's great to get feedback on the podcast, and I'm so grateful that it's you know helped so many people thus far but it's like i have a much much grander goal um but i appreciate that sorry Emma, that was a that was a ramble for no reason but that's just how i'm feeling at this point no i'm the same and i'm always thinking about okay fine i had that person on and that was like someone i worked on for years and then i'm like well now now what and i have friends say to me if i told you a year ago mm. that you would be where you are today you wouldn't you wouldn't have believed me so just enjoy mm. it but mm. I'm so I'm like no let's do it bigger let's do it better <laughs> <laughs> let's do it again exactly um, so let's talk about the seed that started all of this because you are a, an NHS doctor and we've just been chatting before recording about you've gone back into hospital during not back into hospital but you've been working during mm. the COVID-19 crisis and if you had to go back and say what started the, what the seed was that started the book started the podcast what do you think it was oh so the seed was very much when i was uh 11 i think i was 11 or 12 so my mum um was ill so she had uh random attacks of anaphylaxis and anaphylaxis is like your listeners probably know the, the severest form of allergy where your blood pressure goes down uh, you lose consciousness, um, you cover in hives, you can get swelling of your airway, um, you go into shock, basically. It's one of the one of the types of shock that we have. And so she, she started suffering from random attacks of anaphylaxis. She saw a whole bunch of different immunologists. She saw a whole bunch of different types of doctors. She was admitted a whole bunch of times um, with no known cause. Um, and, and she saw some of, the, some of the best of the best. And what she was diagnosed with is um, idiopathic anaphylaxis. Idiopathic being a posh word for we don't know. (laughs) We just don't know what the hell is going on. So idiopathic, here are some medications. Here's an EpiPen, which is a small shot of adrenaline that you keep with yourself at all times. Um, And uh, we'll just see how things go. Um, We'll monitor you. And so she being the really forward-thinking woman that she is, um, and was back then as well. Um, she just took things into her own hands. So she was trained as a lawyer. She's done a whole bunch of different things. She did graphic design. She studied economics. She used to work as an independent options and futures trader. She was in investment banking, like in the 80s. So she's like a real tour de force in terms of like, you know, her experience. And she brings an analytical approach to everything. She's also, uh, my background is in I'm Indian. Both my parents are Punjabi Indian. Uh, Sikh and uh, she's very much got that sort of Ayurvedic lifestyle instilled within her from uh, her upbringing and so she just took it back to basics approach she she stripped out a whole bunch of things in her diet she looked at her meditation uh, she looked at lifestyle she looked at sleep all these different things that we've known for you know millennia really um, and just took it at, like steps at a time and then she came off all her medications thankfully she's never had like an anaphylactic shock ever since and that was well over 20 years ago now um and and that experience is what spearheaded me or, or planted the seed if you like for me to go to medical school in the first place um there was this this one incident 
I can't remember if I talked about it in the first book or not, but there's one incident where she called me into the living room and bear in mind, I was 11. She called me into the living room and she sat me down on the sofa and she's like, repeat, I need you to be a really big boy right now. I need you to be really brave. Here is mummy's medication. And it was an EpiPen. She's like, I need you to push, take the lid off and push this into mummy's thigh right now and push it until it clicks. I was like, all right, okay, fine, got this. Took the lid off, pushed it into her thigh until it clicked. And she feigned like rubbing her thigh after she was like, okay, good boy, like you've done really well. And it was a dummy EpiPen. And what she was doing was was training me to see, you know, if she was to pass out or, you know, something was to happen or whatever. And she was at home alone with me, she would need me to do something like that. And honestly, that experience as difficult as it was at the time, it was like, I want to do this. I kind of want to do medicine. This is what I want to do. And you, you'd think that Asian parents, not to stereotype it, but you think Indian parents would want their kids to go into medicine. Mine didn't really. My, both my parents are in business. They know how hard it is to be a medic. Pay's not great. Um, yes, you get like some sort of um, you know, we get clapped every Thursday now, which is lovely. <laughs> but uh, aside from that, the status and all the rest of it, it it's not a great lifestyle. Um, but I wanted to go to medicine. I think that was probably the seed that allowed me to go into medicine. Um, and so I'll, I'll speed up the story because I've spoken about it before, but just for your listeners who don't know. So I went to medical school. I, I got in um, by the skin of my teeth, actually, into one of the, the best medical schools in West London, Imperial College. I'm honest about that. <laughs> like, yeah, I, honestly, like I, I was. So I, I had interviews at a whole bunch of different universities. I flunked every single one of them, apart <laughs> from uh, Imperials. The last, the last interview I had it was around March in 2002, I think it was 2002, no, 2003. And for those who, uh, for those whose children are going or applying to medical school, they'll realize that that is like really late in the game, considering your marks come out in July, August time, and you go to uh, school at September. So March is super late. So mm-hmm. I got my, I got, I just got this email, uh, not email, letter for the interview. So I went to the interview. I was so prepped because I flunked everything else and I just got in there and it was a high bar. I had to get like three A's or something at A level. So I managed to get into Imperial. I had a fantastic set of six years there. Completely forgot everything about why I went to medicine in the first place, which was my mum's experience of using food as medicine, of using lifestyle as medicine, of getting back to basics and root cause medicine. Um, And it took me getting ill myself straight after leaving medical school um to remember why i started in the first place um so my story was three months after i I left medical school so this was 2009 um i started working at basildon hospital which is a fantastic hospital great place i learned so much a real steep learning curve and um I was doing respiratory medicine. I remember vividly, it was like a long stretch of long days. It was Sunday, it was about 6 p.m. My bleep was going off. I was sat at the nurse's station and I felt my heart just racing, absolutely racing, just came out of nowhere. And it just kept on racing, kept on racing. I was like trying to ignore it, go away, probably a bit stressed, probably haven't had enough water, whatever. Like five minutes into it, I feel like, I feel like I'm, I'm going to pass out. So I like embarrassingly, tap my registrar on the shoulder i'm like would you mind listening to my my heart or feeling my pulse i think i'm going a bit fast and she 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 listened to my heart and then literally within half an hour clothes taken off gown put on hooked up to a heart monitor um and i was parked right next to a patient i'd been seeing earlier that day as well this poor lass had literally no idea what was going on (laughs) my doctor is now sat right next to me um how old were and, you at uh, this point? I was uh, 24. Whoa. 24, okay. yeah, 24. And so what I was diagnosed with uh, was fast AF. Um, and so atrial fibrillation is where your heart beats um, irregularly. And in my case, exceptionally fast. I was going about 200 beats per minute. And I was on this heart monitor. You could see it. But luckily, my blood pressure wasn't dropping. I wasn't having any chest pain symptoms or symptoms of uh, ischemia or lack of... Um, uh, oxygen going to your heart causing muscle damage 
Um, so I was monitored overnight and then I spontaneously flipped out of it. And I thought, you know, at the time, one-off episode, it can happen sometimes for no particular reason. Um, but then I went on to have these episodes two to three times a week, lasting anywhere between 12 and 36 hours at a time. Um, super frightening, super frightening. And you, you know what, Emma, like, it wasn't so much me having a condition and me overcoming it later on using a food and lifestyle approach. It was the experience of being a patient and knowing what, how embarrassing it is to be wheeled in your bed from one department to the x-ray department and back uh, along a corridor with people just walking past you, not paying any attention to you, but for the person in the bed, wow, that's super embarrassing. That's, that's never left me, never, never left me. And that, you know, I, I try and be as empathic with patients because of that experience uh, of myself, like to this day. And that was like well over 10 years ago now. So long story short, so I know this is going on a bit, but <laughs> I had uh, I had uh, electrophysiology studies. I had uh, multiple appointments, cardiologists. I had cardiac MRIs, echocardiograms, everything you can imagine. No cause was found. Um, they thought potentially it could be a re-entry pathway, which is where you have like a short circuiting of your electricity in your heart. Uh, and then I was offered essentially what's called an ablation, which is where you put a guide wire into the large vessel, goes into the heart, and then it uh, essentially ring fences an area around the pulmonary vein, which is where you get misfiring um, uh, myocytes, so muscle cells that can cause electrical uh, activity that's uh, aberrant, and it causes the fibrillation, so an, an inappropriate beating of the heart, so loss of synchronicity. Um, and I was definitely going to go for that, 100% going to go for that. I was a new medic, spoken to loads of my colleagues. I was a good candidate, no previous medical history. It was likely going to be a curative procedure. And the one person who said, I need to look up my diet and lifestyle was my mum, obviously. Um, and uh, embarrassingly, um, and I'm quite happy to say this to mum now, but at the time, I, I was just trying to appease her for the next six months. So I spoke to my cardiologist. I was like, my mum doesn't want me to have this. I know it's really ridiculous to say this. Can I have six months to try out some woo-woo Ayurvedic stuff? Uh, and then I'll come back and have the ablation. They were like, that's fine. Take your medications, any other issues, come back. But you're going to need to have this procedure at some time in the next six months or so or, or a year. Um, and then I just went back to basics. I'll be honest, Emma, I had no idea what I was doing because I wasn't taught nutrition at medical school. None of us were at the time. Um, and I basically went back to basics. So out went the cereal and the sandwiches and the canteen. In came like dark green leafy vegetables, lots of quality fats. I was a massive foodie throughout medical school. I loved food. Um, I, you know, I used to live in a house where we do barbecues and cook-ups and all this kind of stuff, like real experimental stuff with food, and I loved it. So I basically applied my amateur culinary knowledge to creating healthy dishes. I was known as Tupperware Boy because I'd always bring my Tupperware in. I'd try and focus on like uh, meditation, something I was taught as a teenager. Um, so I got back into that. I got back into my sleep hygiene when uh, I wasn't um, uh, doing night shifts and stuff but I, ne I never gave up being a doctor I, I, th there was a, a fleeting thought at some point that I was going to have to give up medicine for, for like a few months because it was definitely uh, in part the stress of being a junior doctor that led to my symptoms coming out but um, yeah no I never gave that up I never gave that up um, and yeah within a year uh, I was symptom free my, my episodes went from two to three times a week to zero and they haven't come back and and i suppose and clear, that was just by adopting by implementing lifestyle changes absolutely yeah so it was lifestyle changes which you know even back then i was kind of scoffing i was like lifestyle changes yeah exercise a bit lose a bit of weight maybe i wasn't even overweight i was i was very slim i was fairly active um, you know, I was, my, I was otherwise in great health and my, my diet wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. It wasn't like I was eating junk food or drinking coffee or anything like that. I wasn't even drinking that much alcohol. But, you know, systematic changes over a long period of time 
can yield some pretty incredible results. And that was my anecdotal experience. But after the fact, I, I can't, it kind of led me to do a, a much deeper dive into how on earth this was possible and why I wasn't taught this either. And after doing a, a deeper dive into the literature and the research and that kind of stuff, I, I kind of had a, started having more open, honest conversations with patients. Um, and I got no, I started doing general practice and um, training in Brighton. I started having, you know, longer consults and, and I got known as the guy that would talk about nutrition to their patients, which was super responsive to certain people uh, whilst refining my, my clinical skills. And, and yeah, and, and then the idea of the doctor's kitchen was born there. I was like, you know, I've got to find an easier way of doing this. I'll, I'll post some, some videos about recipes and why these ingredients are better than others and why they can be beneficial and they're beneficial for. And then it kind of just snowballed from there, really. So it was really a, it's still what I regard as a passion project, um, but now something I'm trying to turn into uh, a commercial sustainable uh, venture that can hopefully benefit millions of people around the world. I think the thing I like about this story that gives it a point of difference, which I really appreciate, is that I've heard similar stories over the years in 20 years as a journalist of people saying conventional medicine didn't fix my problem, my mother's problem, my friend's problem. And so and they go fully down the alternative route. Yeah. But I love me some evidence based science. (laughs) (laughs) But I also really appreciate and enjoy when they come together with things like you're doing, like making lifestyle choices. And even in your book, um, Eat to Be Illness, you make the point in the open in the introduction, which is really confronting, actually. I remember reading mm. it. I'm going to have to go back and read that again. And that's basically the amount of preventable lifestyle-related illnesses that are essentially swamping health, the health service, but that we're all or a lot of us are encountering and could prevent, not by taking a pill. It's like, what do you say? Plates over pills. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the taglines. And so it really is in that, in that introduction, like, because you, you can buy a book like yours and think, great, I've got some nice recipes, and if I eat this, I'll be healthy. But I think for me, the biggest thing is understanding, taking ownership. If I don't feel great now, I have to take some ownership in that. And now I have to take control and ownership of moving forward. I, I, I really agree with that, Emma. And I think the paradigm of the doctor-patient relationship as it's been presented to us over the last perhaps 30, 40 years, or maybe even before that, I would say probably before that, is you go to the doctor, they fix you by giving you something that is out of your control, and then you're better afterwards. And now I think we need to shift our thinking from just going to the doctor as your as, as your health intervention and more towards the doctor can aid your health intervention but healthy living and self-care is a part of your responsibility and and just to your point it's about taking ownership of that and i'll be honest my thinking of this has changed since my own experience because I was the doctor. I was meant to have the answers. And if I didn't have the answers, I would go to someone senior. And they were meant to have the answers, but no one did. And that's when it's like, okay, we don't know everything. I don't know everything. And that humbling experience is something that stays with me now. And part of the doctor's kitchen is to try and not only educate uh, people about the beauty of food and the medicinal effects of eating well and the incredible impacts of lifestyle medicine, not to sensationalize it, but to empower people about just how much impact you can have on your life and your family's life, your children's, your loved ones, by changing very simple things every single day and making that a habit as well. And so I I think we're really at a, a, a change point here, particularly with in a post-pandemic world where people understand and appreciate self-care and the most important things a lot more as well. Um, and I, I'm, I'm happy to you know, make a small contribution to that effort as well. And I think as well, when I first read this book, it was a while ago. And when I knew that we were going to be speaking for the podcast, I picked it up again and I was leafing through it. And I thought, how wonderful that there's a whole chapter on immunity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because... 
I don't know about you, but I my inbox is inundated at the moment with supplements uh, or things for immunity. And listeners, you can probably hear the look on my face. I yeah. sort of look at it quite skeptically. But and this is what I really appreciate appreciate about the book because you'll say, right, these are the things that are really good for immunity. This is why, and this is the evidence that backs that up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I really wanted to do that for like every single chapter and just say, look, let, let's let's do it. it was mirroring the um, the podcast, the, uh, the, the direction of the podcast, um, because I, I would invite guests in like Jenna Machoki, who helped me with the immunity podcast and the inflammation podcast as well. And we just do like have like an hour and a half long discussion about immune health and what that actually means, because I think most people think about immunity as like, OK, we have this like military force inside of us and it's like shooting off chemicals to battle away pathogens and bacteria and yes it does that but the majority of what your immune system is doing is maintaining balance in your in your own bodies it's it's finding those dysfunctional cells which we churn out millions of every single minute of every single day and destroys them or gets them to perform something called apoptosis where it's like self um, destruction or suicide um and, and your immune system is a lot more complicated than just being able to supplement your way out of it or supplementing to quote unquote boost it. Um, and, and, and that's why, you know, I was having a short workout is actually something, uh, an exercise that I, I've quite enjoyed because it, it allows you to be succinct and get to the point and hopefully get your message across in a way that anyone can understand. And so by people finishing that, those, those short, like six, seven pages that written on immunity, people should be left away with, this is what immune health is. This is how I can support it with food. These are the lifestyle factors. And this is why, you know, this is, it, this is a complement to conventional medicine rather than like, I just need to eat this and this is going to happen. It's, we, we don't work in that binary fashion. Um, and, and I actually re-released that episode um, and it, it gave uh, recently over the last couple of weeks and it gave a lot more people a, a greater understanding uh, of, of just how much um, power we have in ourselves. Um, and, and I think it was comforting for a lot of people too. I think as well, what sometimes happens, particularly with nutrition, I find, because you and I uh, know and have spoken to similar people like Dr. Megan Rossi and there are complicated words and there is science and it can be a little bit bamboozling. And I always want to say microdata and not microbiota. <laughs> <laughs> I always read it as microdata anyway. Um, yeah. So I sometimes tie myself in knots. And what I did with you actually is I went back to your teaser. Okay. Because anyone who started a podcast who did a teaser a few years ago when it was like the thing that you did. Yeah. Amazing how you set out your stall to like, this is what's coming. <laughs> and what I really appreciated about what you set out to do is you said there's not going to be jargon. We're going to explain it and we're going to make it understandable and we're going to make it accessible. And I do think that that can be one of the complications with something I find it really a lot with nutrition. I don't know if you find this as well, that it can just be so bamboozling. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely. 30 meters of this stuff in our bodies and there's so much to discuss and there's so much going on. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? I mean, like, I've just finished um, the first part of my master's in nutritional medicine at the University of Surrey. So it's split into two parts. We have the intense essay part. So there's nine modules that you have to do. And then each module has got like um, four essays. So I've, ju I've literally just had my marks in for the 36th essay that I passed. So I'm, I've done that. <laughs> um, but then, oh, thank you. Um, and then I'm doing the project, which is on something else that I'm doing over the next couple of years. And hopefully I can tie the two in to, to complete the master's. But if I was to just uh, publish those 36 essays to the general public and put it on my website or whatever, it, it just wouldn't make much sense. And I don't think it would add much value to, to people's lives because the amount of jargon I have to use in that um, and the expected sort of understanding is just too much. And, and I'll be honest, Emma, even for me, it's nice simplifying things down to their core concepts because it helps me retain the knowledge and the ability to to speak that to to someone else as well to to explain to someone else demonstrates true understanding. But I struggle even now, like you know, knowing about the different taxa in the microbiota, how they interact with 
our, our brain health and our emotions, the different ways in which neurotransmitters that are created in our gut can impact the brain via the vagus nerve, via direct mechanisms, via the brain, uh, blood-brain barrier. You know, even for me, it's like I need to simplify it all down and then explain it in concepts that everyone can understand because nutrition is a very complicated science and it can't just be like calories in, calories out, have this macro, uh, these number of macronutrients, it, you know, and it evolves for the individual too, um, which is why, you know, plates and stuff, I, I get why Public Health England have to create plates because they're in a rock and a hard place where they have to give general advice to the entire population. But it just doesn't work like that. Everyone has to find sort of their own, their own balance and their What's own sort the of thing. Is that thirty percent something a third? Yes, yeah, so the the Public Health England come out with the healthy eating guide, which is like you know the healthy eating plate, which is loads of starchy carbohydrates, which includes bread and pasta and grains and all the rest of it. And then you have your vegetables, then you have your meat, and then you have everything else around it. And it's just quite confusing for a lot of people because not everyone would benefit from eating that way. I mean, certainly, I think a lot of dietitians would agree that that amount of carbohydrate might not be useful for someone who has metabolic syndrome or type 2 diabetes. And and this is where the confusion lies. And this is where you get fury on Twitter, like, oh my God, this plate is ridiculous. And like, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And I can't get this, but it's, it's not intended for that purpose. It's just a general guide. Um, and, and nutrition is just very, very complicated. And I don't think I appreciated the complexity of it until um, I started doing uh, my master's, if I'm honest. Um, when I started doing it, I thought, yeah, I'll just learn a few things and whatever. But the more you, you scratch away at the surface, the, the deeper and the more complex it becomes. Can we talk a little bit about social media, actually, with regard to nutrition? Because you raised a good point. I, The only time I've ever had what I would class as like nastiness and trolling was over a post I wrote about the ketogenic diet. Really? <laughs> what did you write? <laughs> I, did, I did a series in 2018 called 26 Habits where every two weeks I'd either make or break a habit. And it was two weeks because three weeks to make a habit just didn't sound, it, was, it just wasn't as snappy a title. And I tried keto and the, the show would always start with, this is why I'm doing it. It's in the press at the moment. It says that these are the benefits, but realistically, how feasible is it to do the ketogenic diet? And I tried it twice and I failed both times. But somebody read the headline and just said, you're really irresponsible for promoting this. This is wrong. This is bad. What? And it's like consume the content. Yeah. Because you'll see that even I'm going, it's impossible anyway. Yeah. But uh, I've spoken to a few people since, because that was a couple of years ago, who've said it is the thing on social media that will generate that body positivity arguments can get really intense. Have you experienced that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, massively. I mean, to your point, like, to, to your experience, A, you're a journalist. And I think it's not your... It's, it's not your job, but I think it's quite admirable that you you self-experiment in a way that allows the public to understand the complexity and the difficulty of, cre of, of actually following these diets before someone else actually goes and does it. So mm -hmm. I think that's actually kind of – that's actually a lot more responsible than a lot of other people who are just like, this is great. You might want to try it. Go try it because it is a very difficult diet to, to maintain. Where were um, you years ago, Ruthie? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I did. I, I just did a podcast on this with a, um, a friend of mine now, who's actually one of my lecturers on my on my course, and um, she's one of the only registered uh, ketogenic um, dietitians. She works with seven hundred plus uh, clients um, who have the ketogenic diet in a therapeutic manner for um, treatment-resistant epilepsy, for which it is a registered treatment. It's very well known as well. And we've known about the benefits of this for well over two decades, but actually way before that, or in like the 1930s, I think. Um, and so the ketogenic diet is a therapeutic diet. It's brilliant, actually. Um, and it may have some uses in a, in a, a metabolic oncology, which is something that I discussed as well in a different pod. So the furor around ketogenic diets, I think, stems from it being used as a very simple weight loss tool, which it 
accentuates people's issues with body body positivity and the way and and yo-yoing dieting is just never the way forward which is why i'm not like this whole just reduce the calories and then you'll be fine because it's not just about reducing the weight it's about the way in which you reduce that weight and maintaining that weight loss so actually finding a way that you can live with and something that you're going to be able to maintain for years like like two years from now Mm. is much more important than that rapid weight loss because that's going to lead to yo-yoing it changes your body your weight set point it messes around with hormones it's it's very complicated so um I just think on social media, it just can get a bit ragey for the point of being ragey. Mm -hmm. And I really try and stay away from engaging in any toxic or negative behavior. And I'm really sad to say there are some doctors that engage in that kind of behavior um, for the reward of likes and comments and engagement and playing the algorithm and all that kind of stuff. And I just think, why? Like... Are, are my, I mean, I, I don't like to judge and, you know, people might have their reasons, but, you know, my mission and my purpose is to try and spread positivity and try and inform and educate in, in, in a responsible way. Um, it's not to call out or belittle even people who I massively disagree with. Like, you know, I don't agree with everything that Gwyneth Paltrow has put out there, but I don't like slam her on social like that's not what my platform's for and it just i don't want to incite even more like hatred and negative energy it's just like why why would you do that and i think also we have a responsibility as medical professionals on social media like there is clear guidance by the gmc about how you should not be calling out your colleagues you should always act in a professional manner you should always be always be respectful so these are things that i think in the next couple of years people could be struck off for um because you know it's it's become the new norm it's become our new reality and if you yeah. to do that in person to someone you get in a lot of trouble and so mm-hmm. social media especially now when we're locked down it's become our, our 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 method of communication um but yeah no i have been on the uh on the receiving end of of negative backlash i mean the title of my book eat to be illness if you want it to be misconstrued mm. of course you can misconstrue it, it can be like this doctor is telling everyone that they can eat to beat cancer. No, that's not what I'm saying. If you read, if you read the first line of the chapter, it's like this is the hardest chapter I've, I've, I'm writing, and in no way would I want people to construe this as uh, uh, being a silver bullet for for cancer. It's a complicated umbrella term for a very difficult uh, and hard to treat disease and hard to understand disease. Um, but was it a difficult? We, was it a tricky decision to actually put that chapter in, or did you always know I have to do this? I just have to do it right. Hundred percent. I knew I had to do it because, uh, and to the to the start, it was like if we don't talk about this, we create a knowledge vacuum which will be willingly um, uh, filled by charlatans and people trying to promote products and snake oil and all the rest of it. So if we don't talk about it in an educated manner and a way that actually empowers patients uh, in a responsible way, you're going to get some other dude. And they're going to they're spread all sorts of things that can lead to people negating uh, or, or, or uh, declining uh, life-saving treatment. So we have to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, I, and I, I, I'm really proud of that chapter. I, there's nothing that I would change about at war, any of the chapters, really. There's nothing that I would change about anything. Um, and the more I learn even over the last like year and a half, the more I'm validated by things that I wrote like five years ago, because everything I put on social media, honestly, everything I put out there, um, I just think, am I harming anyone? Is anyone who's going to read this? Is anyone going to come to harm? In the same way, if I said anything in clinic on a one-to-one, am I harming this patient? Because our, our oath is first do no harm. And so I, I, I think about that every single time. Um, and that's why there's nothing that I regret at this point if there was i'd be the first to put my hands up and be like that was that was bad and i would apologize and all the rest of it um but yeah it's a, it's a tricky space social media it's a tricky space yeah i was actually chatting to a friend of mine uh, yesterday about like how the experience of social media is um it it's personality building but it, you also have to develop some sort of um some distance from it and like an armor for yourself because it it can really degrade your self-esteem 
And if you let it, it will. I mean, I, I went through a bad time actually. Um, uh, when my, 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 my second book came out and there was a bit of a backlash because of the way the media had promoted it. Um, that was out of my control. But if you read the book itself, it was, so I had to just come back to my core values of what I'm doing and how many people are, are coming to, um, have a positive experience out of the content put out. Um, and I, I'm, yeah, I'm in a better place for it. And I'm, I'm sure you are as well after your nasty comments. <laughs> I just don't talk about the ketogenic diet anymore. I think, to be honest, I don't talk about, um, I think it's a very uh, complicated space because it, particularly food, body positivity, it can be quite triggering. So I just think, I don't want, a bit like you were saying, I don't want to put anything out there with the intention of being helpful that actually is unhelpful, even if it's only unhelpful to one person. Absolutely. You, you know what, Emma, like I'm actually, I've been chatting about this with my team uh, over the last couple of months, actually, because I, I put a post out and it was after I interviewed a friend of mine who's a nutritionist and we were talking in the podcast about, you know, creating healthy habits. And one way to do that is like, you know, ask yourself, is this moment, is this moment where I want to indulge? Is it worth it? Is it like something that you're, are you celebrating something? Or, you know, have you had a long day or, you know, have you, have you, um, I'm, I'm trying to say it in a way that kind of sums up the conversation, but for one of better words, it's basically like, you know, is this a, a moment where it's worth it for me? Am I going to get as much enjoyment from this tree or whatever, um, right now in this moment? Um, and we put that up as a, a tile and like, 95% of the comments were like so encouraging. It was like, yes, this is exactly the framework that I want to try and build for myself because I struggle with just like eating cake every day or like, you know, saying no to things or, you know, because I think everyone inherently knows you have to have, and this is going to sound super unpopular and, and please feel free to disagree with me, but I think we all need to have some inhibition. We all also have to indulge in some guilt and that sounds really wrong for a lot of people and it might not be useful for a lot of people who have got issues with with um, an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating but for the majority of us like I need to engage in some restraint and if I don't I'm just going to eat everything and that's why I don't keep junk food in the house because I know I'll just eat all of it um, but I, I indulge in a healthy way and I, we need to find the vernacular to be able to say this openly and mm -hmm. so what I'm going to do on social media is actually look uh this um, this platform and everything I put out there is for people who want to try and build uh, a healthy framework um, for, for healthy eating. However, if you have an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating, this is not the place for you because we're going to be talking about fasting on my podcast. I'm going to be talking about different ketogenic diets. I'm going to talk about therapeutic approaches for metabolic disease. And, and you know, and if you don't like looking at healthy images or healthy pictures or even the word healthy, then feel free, please, to unfollow me because mm. this might not be good for you. Um, and I think that's a, a responsible way of influencing my audience because you, I, I realize like when, when I say anything, I'm speaking to like, you know, potentially thousands of people at one, one time and they, not may, they may not all be benefiting from a way that I'd intended it to be received as well. So that's my rant on, uh, on social <laughs> media and... and and uh, yeah, it's, it's, but, it's a difficult one. <laughs> but also what I think is really interesting about the book is that you reference weight management or you reference weight, but actually the chapters are brain, heart, inflammation, immunity, cancer, mood, mm. in, and this one surprised me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which actually I, I did flip to and read first. Because I yeah. was like, eyes, ayo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not a northerner. I'm um, which I was. Um, but I thought that was a really interesting, uh, that those were really interesting chapters that you chose. And I really enjoyed the fact that you chose mood, skin, obviously being a beauty journalist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I thought that, I thought mood was really important too, because I think if we're going to talk about time frame, because I think someone's going to say, okay, so say I pick up Rupi's book and I start eating the way that he says. And it's because I feel I've got anxiety or I've got depression. But how long do I have to eat like this before I start to feel a difference? Because that's always going to be the first question, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
So in a sort of <laughs> woolly way, are you able to give a, a time scale on that? And I have an anecdote to tell you afterwards that might back it up. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, that's good to hear. So I, I think in the final chapter, I, I try and bring it all together um, and say, look, this book isn't about going into the chapters and then trying to eat prescriptively for your brain, your skin, your mood. Because the whole purpose of the structure of the first section is to zoom into those different sections. And the final chapter is to zoom out and look at all the similarities across the, uh, across the different chapters. And the secret is, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. It's eating fiber, quality fats, lots of colors, loads of plants, and eating whole, i.e. minimally processed. And I also talk about chrononutrition, which is eating in time. But A, like the whole purpose of nutrition is to fuel our bodies uh, in an enjoyable manner that allows our normal homeostatic symptoms, fancy word for equilibrium or balancing, um, and our innate self-care mechanisms to carry out their functions in an optimal uh, function, in an optimal manner, in an optimal way. And so the whole, um, the whole premise of me zooming into chapters was just to give people an idea. When it comes to time frames, really, it, it really depends on the individual. So I, I was really passionate about trying to get the mood chapter in because this whole subject matter of nutritional psychiatry i've spoken on uh, on the podcast about it two or three times uh, one with felice jacker who's pretty much the pioneer of nutritional psychiatry someone who who coined the term in this paper from 2015 or 2016 which talked about the smiles trial they put on um, I think it was a small group of like 70 patients. Some were put on a dietary regime. Other people were just given some general eating advice. And they had like some patients with severe to uh, moderate to severe depression, a lot of whom came off medications, some of whom resolved their psychiatric condition. It's completely unheard of. Like that, even though it's a very small trial and we can't read too much into it, it is completely unprecedented. And therein lies the question, how on earth is this happening? And is this applicable to everyone? And the short answer, it's not applicable to everyone. Some people have deep psychological reasons as to why they suffer anxiety. And unless you get to the root cause of those, fixing your diet ain't going to do anything. Um, and I think I, I talk about that in the Lifestyle 360 chapter of that mood bit as well, where you know we have to appreciate that we live in a psychogenic environment. It's a, it's a term I, I came up with because it mirrors that of our obesogenic environment. It's an environment that predisposes us to mental health issues, mm -hmm. isolation, urbanization, um, digitalization, a whole bunch of other features as well, as well as the food landscape. And so the timeline is still, you know, how this can help. It's kind of like, how long is a piece of string? But should you do it? Absolutely, yes, because it's one of those tools that we need to get into place for everything else to slot into place as well you can't have a healthy mind without having healthy eating and healthy habits and i think that's something that we all need to engage in um yeah so i, I hope that's answered your question <laughs> that, that particular paper was over 12 weeks if people did want to look into it smiles trial um so three months or whatever and i, I it, it could be weeks. It could be like, you know, I, I know actually, so I will tell you an anecdote for a patient. So I, I, um, I saw them, it's a couple of years ago now, I saw them, uh, mild anxiety, had trialed different SSRIs in the past, was inquiring about um, different medications. We had a long discussion and it's one of those discussions uh, for GPs who listen to this, they're kind of like moments where it's in the middle of your clinic and you're like, if I spend... A double session this everything is going to be backed up and by the time i get to the final patient i'm gonna be like an hour and a half late and it was one of those so it's kind of like a time pressure but i was like no i really need to speak to this person and so we i literally laid out everything that i wanted her to do in terms of healthy and she was super motivated to, to eat well and she knew that she wanted to do better yada yada gave a few re recipes gave her a, a few resources saw her literally i think it was like two and a half weeks later completely changed person and whether that was you know placebo whether it was because i actually gave her the time of day maybe it's because you know the consultation i gave her who knows but at the end of the day she felt a lot better 
mm. and she continued to feel a lot better thereafter. So even when I, I did have those concerts, I, I read her notes and stuff when she was seeing uh, other colleagues. Um, and that is enough for me. If it's worked for one patient, it's enough for me to promote to anyone because you have to ask yourself as a physician, what's the harm and what is the benefit? And the benefits way out, way outweigh the, um, uh, the, the potential downsides of, of telling someone to eat well. Well, the little anecdote I was going to throw in there was just that um, I have a progressive type of hair loss. Oh, yeah. I had, um, I've coloured in my scalp so you can't see it on the video call. But um, I... I was going to say, your hair looks luscious (laughs) and and full-bodied. Thank you so much. (laughs) Um, I had a consultation with a trichologist uh, about four weeks ago. Okay. Pictures, I've since sent off bloods and everything, but I did a full questionnaire and she said, and how do you, how would you say your hair is now? And I'll say, well, I have to say in the last six months, it's really, really improved. Like the health is definitely noticeably improved. And she was going through saying what's changed. And I said, well, I did get the Dyson hairdryer and that's not as hot as other hairdryers. And then I mentioned um, last summer I had uh, breast reduction surgery. So I had six weeks at home in recovery and I cooked for myself and I had Ian Hayes book. And it just made life very easy that it's I just brilliant. seven day baskets. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm friends with Nick, his wife, and she always talks about how she eats a lot of kale. So I started eating a big bag of spinach most lunch times with like poached eggs or sardines or something. And at the end of the consultation, my trichologist Annabelle went, You do realise that your hair's looking good because of your diet, not because of your hair. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, Yeah. Yeah, so so it it shows, is what I'm saying. So I I feel like I can share with my listeners as well. It does make a difference, and but it's not it's not the same as a pill because it won't happen overnight. But when it does happen, it feels really good, and I guess that's the feedback you get. Exactly, exactly. And it's the first thing I tell people is like, look, this isn't a this this food I'm recommending isn't a quick fix. It's something that has to become your habit and. And that's why all the work I'm doing from now on is actually about making healthy eating a habit rather than just eating these recipes that I've created because they're good for you, because your motivation can only stay for so long. And for me, it's like, uh, how do we create a population that's proactive um, and is able to stick with this kind of way of living for a, a long period of time? Um, and whether it's because of your hair, whether it's because of your eyes, whether it's because of your heart as a starting point, it doesn't really matter. You need to just maintain that, that habit and, and that sort of the motion of, of cooking every day. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned about your hair because I'm, I'm actually in the process of speaking to a few different trichologists uh, to talk about eating for your hair. Because there's a, there is a lot of stuff that, again, GPs don't know about because we haven't been taught about nutrition, but also the public don't know about. And I think that could be a real motivating factor for people to, to start looking after themselves if, you know, we do live in an aesthetic um, society. And I think if we can improve elements of how we look and how we appear, it can really benefit our, our psychology and it can benefit our overall health as well. So whatever people's starting point, that's great. And you touched on something there, which I think is so important. It's the fact that, and I've been on this cycle for my entire life of trying something sustaining it for a little while seeing results then not being able to maintain it mm. and that's I, I I feel really strongly the messaging that comes through in your book and from everything I've consumed of yours is it really is about finding your groove so that you never fall out and you mm. never fall off the wagon or whatever you want to whatever the correct mm. in- appropriate um, politically correct way of saying it is but the thing <laughs> that, just that you can adopt it as your lifestyle and I feel having been, having received so many press releases over the years for so many fads and being on the mailing list for so many sort of goofy style things that I, I can see how they promise so much and they feel good in the beginning. But then when you fall off, you kind of, you really beat yourself up for it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Whereas this is about adopting a completely new lifestyle. So our time together is drawing to a close. So I think what I would love to leave my listeners with, if you don't mind, is like if you were saying, right, we've got a few minutes in clinic. I'm going to tell you these are the things. If you only remember these things about my messaging, about how to eat, please remember these. What would they be? Okay, that's a really good question. So uh, 
I, I would talk to them about the principles of healthy eating. So I said, look, don't worry about calories. Don't worry too much about you know reducing carbs or anything like that. Just just think about the principles, okay? Eating colorfully, so getting two portions, of, uh, two to three portions of vegetables at every mealtime if possible. That's great. Eating whole, quality fats. That's nuts and seeds and good good quality oils. Um, plenty of fiber. That's a lot that's lacking, and we can get protein and, and fiber from things like beans and pulses. Um, and having it plant focused. So think about your plants before you think about animal products if you choose to have animal products. Totally up to you. So just think about it and I write those down and I give them a recipe to my. So, so first of all, it's like these are the principles. So when you look at your plate of food, just think, are you ticking off those boxes? Fine. These are, these are the principles here. Master a couple of dishes. Dishes that you just can fall back on just like that whether it's two or three whatever it's up to you just master them because you become a lot more kitchen confident as well and the other thing i say is every time this kind of reflects on the um the uh the ted talk that i did uh, a couple of months ago now is just ask yourself can you add one more mm. just add one more every meal time just add one more fruit vegetable nut or seed every meal time can you do that and that will give you a framework to just go forward and eat healthy as part of your habitual thing. I mean, whenever I'm in a, in a restaurant, for example, I always add the side of spinach or I always add the side of mixed salad because I'm just adding one more. But that's just become so normal now. And I think a lot of people can, can implement that too. Yeah, that's lovely advice. And like you say, not, not a tricky thing. And it doesn't have to be expensive. That's always the thing I think people come down to. And healthy eating in inverted commas seems like something you have to go to a specialist supermarket for, but it's not. Exactly. And it doesn't, have, it doesn't have to be something that is grossly expensive. Just as a note, if you are saying this to people and they come back at you and they say, but uh, what are the things that they usually come back at you with and how do you answer them? So they usually say it's time and it's expense. And so it's like, you know, the time thing I totally get. And that's why I always say to them, look, these are the recipes that I would start off with because it, it literally takes, it's so quick. I can't tell you how, you know, how easy it can be. And that's actually what my, my next book is going to be about. It's, it's going to be called 321, which is three portions of fruit and vegetables per portion, two servings in every recipe and only using one pan. So it's like, tray bakes, casseroles, curries, stews, one pan breakfast, everything in one single pan because it reduces the washing up, reduces the prep time and the mental effort it takes to actually create a meal as well. So I give them a few three, two, one recipes. And the whole expense thing, I always remind them, look, the most nutritionally dense ingredients are often the cheapest on the shelf, the cheapest. And they're like, well, what kind of things are you talking about? It's like the broccoli, the, the cabbage, the yes, the kale, the different types of greens. So honestly, if you just build a, a basket, um, it will be so cheap. You, you, you will reduce your food bills. Um, but obviously, if you go to certain organic farms or certain like uh, restaurants or cafes, yeah, it's going to be like really super expensive because you're paying the premium there. But actually, if you go to back, back to basics and cook from scratch, you'd be surprised at how cheap it can be. And, and this is something that we're teaching in, um, in Coloring Medicine, which is the nonprofit that I started, where we're teaching medical students um, the foundations of nutrition, but also how to cook. Uh, and one of our modules is food insecurity, because 4 million people, I think it's going to be more now uh, post-pandemic, but 4 million people rely on food banks. Mm. And so one of our modules is structured around how we can build a healthy meal purely from ingredients that you get from a food bank. And so if we can do that with those who are that food insecure, we can do that with the average household expenditure okay. as well. That's so powerful. So interesting. Um, um, if you wouldn't mind as well, I will put the links to, uh, is it culinary medicine? And sure. all in the show notes. I will obviously encourage listeners to follow you on social media because as well as really good nutrition advice, and an excellent podcast, I have to say. You also put really wonderful, lovely, positive things out there in the world as well, which is really nice sometimes to scroll through and see one of your posts. And it's just, here are some of the gorgeous, lovely things that are happening in the world at the moment. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. 
It has been such a pleasure to chat pleasure to chat to you. I could chat to you for hours. Thank you so much for coming on the show. The link to the book will obviously be in the show notes. Um, but it's oh. just been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you, Emma. No, that was great. I really enjoyed that. You're you're you can tell you've been a journalist for twenty years because you make it very easy to chat. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you'd like to find out more about The Doctor's Kitchen, then please go to the show notes where you will find all the links to everything discussed and, of course, to Rupi himself. If you want to get in touch with me, it couldn't be easier. Simply email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or you can slide into my DMs on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you would like to chat to me and thousands of other listeners of this podcast, then please do go to the show notes where you can find the link to join the Facebook group. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. It is such a happy lovely supportive group of people well it's you my most excellent listeners who are all in there so please do go and you will be well warmly welcomed by all of us and by me thank you so much for listening i'll see you on the next one